Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, sexual abuse, and suicidal ideation that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. On a freezing November night in 1988, criminologist Bob Lloyd was called to a probable arson in Thornton, Colorado. Ironically, a firefighter's home had been burnt down. As Bob poked around the smoking remains, a picture started forming in his mind. There were no signs of a forced entry. Though it did look like the place had been ransacked, nothing of value was missing from the house. But it was only after Bob investigated the crawl space in the garage that all the pieces came together. Crammed inside the small, dark gap were the mangled remains of the homeowner, Glenn Harrelson. The find chilled Bob to his core. While the blackened and twisted body showed the expected damage from the fire, the victim's head was completely intact. Normally, the human skull would have exploded after being exposed to a blaze that intense. Bob surmised that the man must have died of a head wound before the fire was set. So, the question became, who wanted Glenn Harrelson dead? Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. Last week, we explored the chaotic relationships of Sharon Nelson, a 37-year-old serial adulterer who scandalized a small Colorado community with her wild behavior. After leaving her husband for local doctor Perry Nelson, Sharon leapt straight into another affair with her neighbor, Gary Starr Adams, in the fall of 1982. This week, we'll see how Sharon drove her new lover to cross the ultimate line for her with fatal consequences. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? 
Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Just one week after 37-year-old Sharon Nelson flirted with Gary Adams at her Halloween party, the two were already embarking on their first secret rendezvous. Sharon had invited Gary to swing by her husband's optometry office to get better acquainted. Gary had a wife of his own and knew Sharon was trouble from the start. Yet there was something about her he couldn't resist. She was aggressive and alluring. Just moments after he stepped into the office, Sharon pounced. As Gary went in for a hug, she planted a sensuous kiss on his lips and started pawing at him. Gary was surprised and excited. He hadn't expected things to move so fast. But they didn't go much further that afternoon. The romance was interrupted almost immediately when a new client walked in to try on some glasses. Sharon told Gary to get a motel, and he slipped out the back door. A few hours later, the two met up again. Once they had cozied up together in the motel bed, Sharon showed a softer side of herself. The pair chatted nervously for a while in a way that made Gary wonder if there was something more than just lust between them. Their spark, it seemed, was genuine. It wasn't too long before things escalated. Sharon excused herself to the bathroom and reappeared in skimpy lingerie. Gary was blown away by her curves, but despite his intense attraction, his body wouldn't cooperate. He felt guilty about cheating on his wife. Sharon comforted him and asked him to simply hold her. She confessed that she was starved for tenderness. Her husband, Perry, was cold and distant. Over the next few weeks, Gary and Sharon saw each other as often as possible. With each stolen kiss, they became more brazen. While neighbors originally thought he was helping Sharon with some maintenance on her home, rumors quickly began to spread throughout town. But though the two of them were cheating, things weren't all that they seemed. Despite meeting Sharon over a dozen times, Gary still suffered from performance issues. Whether it was guilt, shame, or nerves, something was preventing him from consummating the affair. Even so, after each embarrassing incident, he found himself coming back for more. He was determined to see things through. A few weeks into their relationship, he and Sharon traveled to a plateau overlooking Lake Trinidad and lay stark naked under the enormous Colorado sky. The open air made all the difference. For the first time, Gary and Sharon made love out by the water. For Gary, it was bliss. Soon, he lost himself in the sort of wild sex he had only ever dreamed of. He grew addicted to Sharon and what he came to call her special sauce. As their sex life intensified, so did Sharon's complaints about her husband. She claimed Perry abused their two young children, showing bruises on her arms as evidence. 
Gary had a hard time picturing Perry turning violent, but the more he listened to Sharon's stories, the angrier he became. One day on the phone, he asked Sharon if she'd ever considered taking her husband out of the picture for good. She had. Perry, meanwhile, was fighting to save his failing optometry business, which had been derailed by his wife. Thanks to Sharon's poor management, terrible customer service skills, and notorious reputation, he had a fraction of his client base left. When he wasn't working, he was out drinking his woes away. Soon, it became clear to Perry's friends that the once devout Seventh-day Adventist and beloved pillar of the community was spiraling. At a medical conference, he broke down into tears over the state of his life. He'd wrecked his first marriage and lost contact with his three eldest daughters. He was drowning in debt, all for Sharon, who didn't even seem to care. Like so many men before him, he couldn't break free of her spell. For Sharon, it had never been about love. Around this time, she confided in a neighbor that she had first set her sights on Perry soon after moving to Colorado. She reportedly admitted to snooping through the church records in order to identify him as the wealthiest man in the congregation. Before I cover Sharon's psychology, please note that I am not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for this show. The prospect of marrying a person simply for money has long been considered shameful, but social attitudes have changed dramatically over the years. Psychologist Dr. Sheila Keegan believes that the concept is less scandalous now than it was in the past. She connects this recent acceptance with the rise of celebrity culture, saying, people want an instant route to fame, wealth, and success. Greed is no longer perceived as a bad thing, and women are admired for being smart, but not necessarily clever. Though things may have changed somewhat, Sharon's confession was appalling to her small Colorado town in 1982. But no matter what anyone said, she had no shame about her motivations. And so far, Perry and his depleted bank account hadn't lived up to her expectations. Regardless of his debt, she was determined to get the life she thought she deserved, one befitting a doctor's wife. Not long after Perry's breakdown at the medical conference, she turned up to the optometry office with a brand new car purchased in his name. Perry's jaw hit the floor. Even Gary had to question how she planned to pay for the car when her husband was up to his eyes in debt. She had a plan, she assured Gary, and he needed to help her. Months later, on a warm June night in 1983, Gary waited with a friend at a rest stop outside of Castle Rock, Colorado. As Perry's black VW drove by, they peeled out to catch up. The two men followed Perry to a bar and sat down beside him, pretending their meeting was a natural coincidence. Perry was happy to see friendly faces and called their meeting a happy encounter. He was blissfully unaware that Gary and his friend were doing Sharon's devious bidding. After a few drinks, the three men hit a strip club outside of Denver to let off some steam. 
When Perry left for the bathroom, Gary slipped something into his beer. He hoped it would cause Perry to pass out then and there, but the plan quickly backfired. Even under the influence of the drug, Perry walked out of the strip club by himself. In the end, Gary and his friend decided it was too dangerous to kill him that night. All three of them slept in their cars, shared breakfast the next morning, and then went their separate ways. Perry had no idea how close he'd come to losing his life. A few hours later, Sharon nearly had a heart attack when he showed up back at home. She expected him to already be dead. She quickly phoned Gary and tore into him for not giving her any notice. He explained what had happened and promised to do the deed soon, but Perry wasn't planning to leave town for a few more weeks. They decided to put off the murder temporarily. In the meantime, Sharon took out extra life insurance policies on her husband. To keep him in the dark, she forged a signature on the paperwork. A few days afterward, Gary and his wife Nancy went over to Sharon's for dinner. He pulled Perry aside and told him he'd heard about his trip to Denver in July. He wanted to tag along. Perry was thrilled by the idea of a road trip and eagerly agreed. When the day finally came, the two men left in total secrecy. Gary had told his wife he'd be working out of town for the weekend. No one besides Sharon knew where he actually was. During the car ride, Perry opened up about the sorry state of his life. Gary couldn't help but feel bad for him. He truly couldn't imagine Perry actually doing any of the violent things Sharon accused him of. But the plan was already in motion. He couldn't fail twice. Besides, he wanted the insurance money too. With Perry out of the way, he and Sharon could be together forever. After the men had been out on the road for a while, a torrential downpour began. Perry hated driving in the rain, so the men pulled over in a parking lot by a creek to get some rest. While Perry reclined in the driver's seat, Gary excused himself and went walking by the water. He strolled along the shore for several minutes, searching for a rock he could use to end his friend's life. When he returned to the car, he told Perry his wallet had fallen out of his pocket and asked for help finding it. Perry, of course, obliged. That was the kind of guy he was. Perry used a flashlight to search the sand for the wallet while the overflowing creek beside him raged like a river. As soon as he turned around, Gary lifted the rock he'd found and brought it down on Perry's skull. His friend crashed into the freezing water and sunk below the surface. To Gary's surprise, however, Perry quickly re-emerged, thrashing his way back to land. Gary pushed him back in the creek and tried to submerge him, but Perry put up a hard fight. Eventually, both men ended up in the water, the current dragging them steadily away from the shore. After what seemed like an eternity, Gary managed to wriggle free of Perry's grasp and make his way back to the sand. He watched his friend be swept away by the water, not sticking around to see where he ended up. Coming up, Sharon plays the part of the grieving widow. 
Hey, Parkasters, looking for a more lighthearted listen? Then I've got the perfect podcast for you. The new Spotify original from Parcast called Incredible Feats. Hosted by comedian and podcaster Dan Cummins, Incredible Feats is a daily show spotlighting true accounts of mind-blowing physical strength, mental focus, and bizarre behavior. Join Dan every weekday as he goes behind the scenes and into the achievements of everyone from freedivers and body modifiers to ultramarathoners and moms. Incredible Feats is offbeat entertainment that's sometimes weird, sometimes wonderful, and always surprising. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On July 22, 1983, Gary Adams killed his lover's husband, Perry Nelson, by shoving him into a raging Colorado Creek. To cover his tracks, he either drove or pushed Perry's car into the water afterward. Then a friend picked him up on the highway and drove him back to town. It was all a part of a scheme concocted by Perry's wife, 37-year-old Sharon Nelson. She had asked Gary to kill her husband so they could split the insurance payout. At first, it seemed like everything had gone according to plan. The morning after Perry's murder, his friends Bob and Donna Goodhead drove to his home for a visit. They were surprised to find Sharon alone in the lavish house. Though Sharon assured them everything was fine, the Goodheads weren't so sure. Perry should have returned from his trip to Denver hours before they arrived. The couple tried to make small talk with Sharon, but grew acutely nervous as time went on. When they heard about flash floods on the highway, they started to worry something had gone wrong. When it became clear that the Goodheads weren't going to drop the matter anytime soon, Sharon seemed to have a sudden mood swing. After hours of acting like there was nothing to fear, she broke down in tears claiming she was terrified for Perry. Later in the kitchen, she asked Donna what she'd do if her husband suddenly disappeared. Donna tried to dodge the unpleasant question, but Sharon wouldn't let it go without an answer. The entire situation struck the Goodheads as morbidly bizarre. They finally left the home at 10 p.m., more afraid than ever that Perry was in trouble. The next morning, they returned to check in on their friend. Perry was nowhere to be found. Instead, they found Sharon helping a neighbor, a man named Harry Russell, fix the brake lines on his car, something Perry had apparently agreed to do. Sharon was smiling and upbeat, once again mysteriously even keeled for someone who was missing a husband. The Goodheads implored Sharon to call the police about Perry, which she reluctantly agreed to do. The highway patrol told her on the phone that they would keep an eye out for her husband's black VW. After hanging up, Sharon had another bizarre mood swing. 
she suddenly became upset as if the reality of the situation was hitting her for the first time. Bob and Donna spent the rest of the day with her as her demeanor shifted unpredictably. By dinner, she was drunk and rambling about Perry's many supposed enemies. This struck the Goodheads who had known Perry for decades as the strangest thing she'd said so far. Perry was beloved by everyone. It was then that Donna started to suspect that Sharon had Perry killed. In her mind, there was simply no other explanation for the bizarre behavior. But for the moment, she kept her fears to herself. The next morning, two days after Perry's disappearance, a jogger found his VW partially submerged in the creek. It had been smashed to bits by the raging current. Authorities suspected Perry had crashed into the water during the storm and had been swept away. After hearing the news, Sharon arrived at the police department to finally fill out a missing persons report. Meanwhile, Perry's friends quickly organized a search party. They swarmed the area around the creek looking for him, still clinging to hope that he was okay. Mechanic Jim Whitley was one of those who dropped everything to join the search after the VW was discovered. He traveled towards Clear Creek in a crowded van, squeezed in right next to Sharon. She immediately started leaning on Jim for sympathy, telling him how distraught and afraid she felt. She was so convincing that when he felt her hand brush up against his leg the first time, he assumed it wasn't on purpose. But when she touched him a second time, it was clear that her actions were anything but accidental. He watched in disgust as she started to stroke his inner thigh seductively, all while continuing to talk about how much she missed Perry. Behavior like this suggests that Sharon suffered from compulsive sexual behavior. The World Health Organization defines this as an impulsive disorder characterized by a persistent pattern of failure to control intense, repetitive sexual impulses or urges. This condition might explain why Sharon was so focused on sex, even while she was trying to portray herself as a grief-stricken wife. Jim watched Sharon closely for the rest of the trip. The events of the next few days only deepened his suspicions. Sharon stayed with him and his wife, Julie, for a few days to be closer to the police in town. She promptly borrowed money from the couple and began selling off Perry's personal items on the side. Within days, she had even listed his optometry practice for sale. Her desire to completely erase all traces of her husband, who hadn't even been officially declared dead, was troubling to everyone who knew her. Then, after Perry had been missing a week, Sharon truly crossed the line. That day, her lover and accomplice Gary Adams officially moved in with her. Gary's wife, Nancy, was furious. Rumors spread like wildfire. Many believed that Perry had faked his own death to avoid taxes and cash out on his life insurance, while others rightly guessed that Sharon murdered him. All the while, the quest for Perry continued. Dozens of people looked by the creek as authorities searched the water from above for signs of life or of death. None of it bothered Sharon, who continued to act as if her husband had never existed. Instead, 
she focused on Gary, giving him a makeover to turn him into the man of her dreams. She made up a new grooming routine for him filled with fancy lotions and oils, started blow drying his hair, and completely overhauled his wardrobe. While Gary gave in to her aesthetic demands, the two of them fought about nearly everything else, from chores to their children, to the rampant gossip swirling around the community. Gary's wife, Nancy, was the biggest sticking point of all. A few weeks into the new living arrangement, she came up to the house to complain about Sharon's son, Danny, messing with her mail. Tensions boiled over and a knockdown, drag out fight ensued between the two women. Gary broke them up and shockingly took Nancy's side in the feud. He forbade Sharon from ever touching his wife again. Not long afterward, he moved back in with his wife. He told Sharon he still loved her, but they couldn't live under the same roof. For Nancy, the small victory encouraged her not to give up on her husband, though she knew things weren't officially over with Sharon. Sharon certainly wasn't willing to go away quietly. She had a jeweler melt down Perry's wedding ring into a necklace and gave it to Gary. It was a twisted token of her affection and a symbol of the bond they shared after murdering her husband. By December of 1983, five months after Perry disappeared, Sharon Nelson was a whole new woman. Though she couldn't officially collect the full payout until Perry's body was found, she used some of the money she got from her husband's life insurance policies to finance a lavish lifestyle. Her opulent fur coats and continued love affairs were the talk of the town. While Sharon clearly didn't care what anyone thought of her, the gossip did make her more isolated than ever. She was so alone that it's possible she longed for a friend. Or at least, that's what Barb Rossetti, Perry's former office manager, thought when she got an unexpected Christmas card from Sharon that year. Barb suspected that Sharon had a hand in her husband's death, but decided to give her the benefit of the doubt and invited Sharon over for a visit. Two days later, Sharon arrived, dressed to the nines. Barb tried to be pleasant, but it was instantly clear how much tension still lingered between the two women. After a few minutes of awkward conversation, Barb could no longer help herself. She had to ask if Sharon killed Perry. Sharon responded, no, but I sure wish I did. Then she laughed as if it was a joke. Barb didn't think it was funny and abruptly asked Sharon to leave. The two women never spoke again. The confrontation did little to change Sharon's behavior and she continued to traipse around the tiny Colorado town courting gossip for months. On August 14, 1984, over a year after Perry's disappearance, authorities finally found a body in the creek that they thought might be his. Originally, they estimated the dead man was in his 30s, much younger than 60-something Perry, but Sharon steamrolled them. Before too many questions could be asked, she claimed the body was definitively her husband's and had it cremated. She would later mail Perry's parents, who never got a chance to say goodbye, the ashes. With that, the investigation was closed. 
police officially determined that Perry had been caught in a flash flood and drowned in the creek. With a body now found, Sharon was entitled to the full life insurance payout, totaling more than $250,000. To celebrate, she gave Gary an envelope stuffed with $10,000, and the two of them made love. She promised that the worst was over. They'd finally be able to live happily ever after. Or so she hoped. Up next, Gary kills again. Now, back to the story. By the final months of 1984, it seemed like Sharon Nelson had everything she wanted. A full bank account, the mountain home of her dreams, and no husband to tie her down. After conspiring with her lover, Gary Adams, to kill her husband, Sharon reconnected with her first daughter, 15-year-old Rochelle. Though parenting had never been much of a priority in the past, and she hadn't spoken to Rochelle in years, Sharon was overjoyed to have her daughter move in with her. Despite the fact that they were essentially strangers, it turned out that the mother and daughter were almost identical. Sharon preferred to be a friend rather than a parent. She taught Rochelle to shoplift, put her on the pill, and set her up with a much older man named Bart Mason. Meanwhile, the revolving door of men in her own love life kept spinning. She and Gary were on and off so frequently that even Rochelle couldn't keep track. Whenever the two were on a break, Sharon ran to Buzz Reynolds, her husband Perry's former best friend. A few years earlier, a short-lived fling between the pair had ended after Sharon got pregnant. Now, the two of them wanted to try again. This time, Sharon even got Buzz to agree to an unofficial marriage, complete with a spectacular ceremony that wouldn't technically be legally binding. She even went as far as to invite her conservative Seventh-day Adventist parents to the wedding. Within minutes of arriving in Colorado, however, they stumbled on Sharon in bed with Gary Adams, who wasn't even the man she was supposed to be marrying. It was clear to them that their wayward daughter would never settle down and live a respectable life. They left town without staying for the ceremony. Unsurprisingly, Sharon's latest relationship with Buzz didn't last long. She bounced back and forth from his arms to Gary's. Eventually, she left Buzz for good, though it was all the same to Gary. He still lived with his wife, Nancy, which tore Sharon up inside. After years of playing second fiddle, she finally decided she'd had enough in the spring of 1987. That year, at 41 years old, Sharon moved to Denver to start fresh. She had resolved to stay away from Gary, so she started thumbing through the personal ads in the newspaper. One of them, written by 45-year-old Glenn Harrelson, seemed right up her alley. She reached out to him and the two of them were dating each other in no time. Glenn was a gentle and well-liked war veteran turned firefighter. He'd been married once before to a woman named Andy and had two teenage kids. After 20 years, the couple grew apart and divorced without any bad blood. Glenn was a newly single man who was lost without a wife. To him, Sharon seemed to be sent straight from heaven. But to everyone else, the pairing was inexplicable. 
Sharon was undeniably wild while Glenn was sweet and soft-spoken. Sharon was domineering while Glenn was meek. She quickly became the center of his world. Over the following months, Glenn started seeing his friends less and even stopped wearing his toupee because Sharon asked him to. Everyone else in Glenn's life was concerned by the way Sharon steamrolled him, but he laughed off their concerns. After only a few months of dating, the two moved in together. Sharon wasted little time taking over the house and making it hers. Glenn's daughter soon found business cards printed with the name Sharon Harrelson on them. But while Sharon seemed interested in marriage, she was also shockingly callous to Glenn. When he came down with a severe case of mononucleosis, she abandoned him to return to Gary. Glenn had to call his ex-wife Andy to take him to the emergency room. A few days later, Sharon finally came to visit Glenn in the hospital. As her boyfriend languished on his sickbed, Sharon revealed that she was seeing another man. She asked if 46-year-old Glenn would be open to being non-exclusive. The aging firefighter was too weak to put up a fight, but even after he agreed to an open relationship, Sharon broke up with him a few weeks later. Glenn was devastated, even breaking down in tears in front of his children. He would do anything to get her back. A few days later, he mailed Sharon a cassette recording, begging for her to meet him one last time. Sharon agreed, and that night, Glenn asked her to marry him. He told her he couldn't live without her. Sharon smiled and said yes. On June 2nd, 1988, 42-year-old Sharon wedded Glenn at the local courthouse wearing denim shorts and a tank top. A few weeks later, they had a ceremony in a church for Glenn's family in Iowa. It didn't take long for the relationship to become rocky. Sharon was extremely controlling and made every decision for the both of them. She even hung up pictures of her dead husband, Perry, the man she had killed, inside Glenn's home. Glenn was a wreck. He knew she was still seeing Carrie on and off. He thought that committing to Sharon would make her settle down. He was wrong. But no matter what, he wouldn't give Sharon up. He even agreed when Sharon announced that she was moving back to her old house in Wet Canyon. He just had to accept having a long-distance wife. The moment she was back, Sharon and 45-year-old Gary reunited. In bed on the night of November 15, 1988, she told Gary they needed to get rid of Glenn. She reportedly wanted it done before Thanksgiving so she wouldn't have to spend the holiday with his family. Once he was gone, she promised they'd be rich from his insurance policy and they could finally be together. While Gary had no hard feelings towards Glenn and wasn't even sure he wanted to try living with Sharon again, he decided the plan was worth the money. Sharon drew him a map of the house and gave him her key and told him to bring back Glenn's wedding ring as a souvenir. Sharon's aggression is highly unusual for a cis female partner. According to psychology professor Todd Shackelford, when women kill their male partners, it is almost always done in self-defense or in defense of her children. Sharon, however, was an anomaly. Her sole motivation appeared to be financial gain. 
In an analysis published by the American Bar Association, researchers found it was quite rare for women to kill for a life insurance payout. The new Sharon Harrelson, however, was not most women. Just five nights after she hatched her latest murder plot, Gary snuck into Glenn's ranch home and waited in the darkened entrance hall, wielding a tire iron. He ambushed Glenn as he entered the home, but Glenn didn't go down as easy as they expected. After being knocked to the ground, he stumbled back to his feet and wrestled Gary for his life. Though Glenn managed to knock the tire iron away, Gary had brought a gun in case things went bad. In two quick shots, the fight was over. Now, Gary had to get rid of the evidence. He ransacked the house to make it look like a botched robbery, then doused the body with gasoline and created a delayed fuse by placing a lit cigarette inside a box of matches. After waiting to see smoke rising from the windows, Gary sped off into the night. He thought he'd gotten away clean, but criminologist Bob Lloyd was soon able to determine that Glenn had died of a gunshot wound to the head. All eyes immediately turned to the latest, Mrs. Harrelson. The very next day, two detectives arrived at Sharon's house to question her. While she tried to play the grieving wife, she was far from convincing. After linking Glenn's murder with Perry's mysterious death five years earlier, it was obvious she was the culprit. Sharon confessed the following afternoon. According to her, Gary had forced her into helping kill Glenn. She also admitted to having him kill Perry a few years earlier. In the end, Sharon pleaded guilty to two counts of first-degree murder and waived her right to a jury trial. Gary argued his innocence at first, but took a plea bargain when he found out Sharon was willing to testify against him. After a decade of court battles and civil suits, all five of Perry Nelson's children were granted lump sums from the insurance agencies who paid out his policies. The companies had flagged Sharon's claims as potentially fraudulent from the beginning, but had failed to act on that information. Instead, they gave his murderer a quarter of a million dollars. Years later, Perry's daughter Lori visited her former stepmother in jail, looking for answers. She wanted to know why Sharon had really killed her father. She couldn't believe it was only about the money, but Sharon had no answers for her. She only looked down at her feet as Lori asked her questions. When at last she prepared to leave, Lori told Sharon that she hated her. All Sharon could say in response was, I know. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with another episode. For more information on Sharon Nelson, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Bitch on Wheels by Greg Olson extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, 
But now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Crimes of Passion, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. We'll see you next time, when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Hey, Parcasters! Don't forget to check out the brand new Spotify original from Parcast, Incredible Feats. Join host Dan Cummins as he explores true accounts of weird, wonderful, and all-out wild achievements. New episodes premiere daily, Monday through Friday. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.